enjoy the fact that we get to impact the patients we care for now with the research we do, but I also enjoy seeing Raven, Emily, and other young scientists in our team have these special moments in their career and, and learn and, and, and work together and, and, and grow and being part of that, you know, that's, that's a special reward. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today we have three guests, Samik Roy-Chowdhury, Emily Hoskins, and Raven Vela. They're all members of the Roy-Chowdhury Lab here at the James, which specializes in precision cancer medicine. The lab is led by Samik, who is a physician, scientist, and also a teacher and mentor. Emily and Raven are both PhD students, young scientists who will lead the way in the years to come with the help and training of their mentors in the Roy Chowdhury Lab. And that's what we're going to talk about today, training and inspiring the next generation of great cancer scientists. Where does innovation come from? How do you overcome adversity? How does teamwork support innovation and new ideas? And what famous football or basketball coach will Samik quote today? So welcome, Samik, Emily, and Raven. Hi. Hi. Good, Great good to, to be you. here. Thanks to all three of you for being here. So let's start off. Let's get a little bit of your backgrounds and how you wound up here and in Samik's lab. Raven, why don't you start us off? And I can see you're wearing a, a University of Connecticut sweatshirt. So I'm assuming that's where you went to undergrad. Yep, you're absolutely right. Um, I grew up in Connecticut and then went to University of Connecticut for undergrad. Uh, I majored in biophysics and Spanish. And um, I was always interested in medicine and always wanted to be a doctor. But um, through my research experiences in undergrad and high school, I got really interested in cancer research as well. And so um, I applied to Ohio State to the MD-PhD program and um, got in here and met um, Dr. Roy Chowdhury and just really enjoyed his lab, enjoyed the environment and feel like this is the place for me. What about his lab and his specialty connected with you? Well, I've always been really interested in treating patients as individuals. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to treat them based on their DNA and not just um, you know, features that can be shared with lots of different people. And I really liked that his lab was focused on precision and um, looking at every patient individually. And beyond that, I really like the teamwork and the style of his leadership. Okay. And how many years into your mixed physician PhD program are you in? Well, I just finished my first year of medical school. So I have one year of medical school left and then um, four years of a PhD. And then I go back for the last two years in medical school. Okay. Good luck. And that's a long journey, but I'm sure it'll be worth it. Thank you. Yeah. Emily, what is your background and how did you wind up here? Um, I've always wanted to pursue a career in medicine. And when I went to BYU, Brigham Young University, I studied bioinformatics, which essentially is using computer science to analyze biological data, which usually is big data. Yeah, I would, Samik and I have talked about that before, the, the, how you just breaking down the, the code and mutations, and it, it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what I find fascinating is you can, like large data allows us to visualize trends and patterns, maybe a certain mutation that's associated with a clinical feature and um, to improve, you know, treatment and such. So you're at BYU and you want to get into big data, yeah. cancer. How did you find Samik? That's a great question. So 
I knew that I wanted to study precision medicine and large data. And I did a simple search looking for mentors in Ohio State who focused on that. And I actually came across your podcast, the first episode, when um, you interviewed Samik about precision medicine. Wow. I didn't realize we had that much of an impact, Samik. Yeah. So, so essentially, I could say you've recruited me to Samik's lab. Uh-oh. So, so, I, so it better work out or I'm in trouble, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. No pressure, though. But I'm, I'm assuming so far it's working out. Yeah. It's so great. And this is your first year of your PhD program? This is, I'm entering my third year. Third year? Oh, I was off. You're good. You're good. <laughs> and how long, and five or six years generally? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's a perfect segue when you talked about looking for a mentor, because that's, I think, what we're going to talk about a lot today. So, um, Samik, um, I just happened to come across a quote today from your mentor, Mike Caligiri, the former head of the Comprehensive Cancer Center in the James, and you worked in his lab when you were a PhD student. So let me read the quote to you, because I think that's pretty much what you're doing today. And his quote was, the real science is being done by the young people. So does that still ring true today? That's exactly what Dr. Caligiri had told me during my training that's exactly what I tell Emily and Raven. It's about young scientists, new ideas, working together, solving problems. So it's all about innovation, new ideas. So how do you, as their mentor, help them find innovation? That's a really good question. And over my years of training, and now I mentor young scientists such as Emily and Raven, I do a lot of thinking about what innovation is and what are we doing to impact the patients that we have with cancer and we're trying to solve existing problems in cancer in new ways better ways and we have to pull all of our tools together to make that happen so innovation is new solutions to old problems and to make that happen it's not technology it's not data it's not genetics alone, it's people. It's the human talent, the raw talent that we bring to the problem. And it's how we think and it's how we think together and it's how we listen to one another. And so it's really about training our young scientists who are not influenced by dogma or by tradition, but you're bringing new ideas to the table and that's where innovation is. Boy, that's a great thought that, that that they're not influenced by dogma because in so many professions and so many jobs there's this entrenched culture that prevents you from coming up with with new ideas and that's perhaps why certain industries like the newspaper industry that I was in are, are struggling and other industries so how do you how do you teach them that uh, the word entrenchment is a, is a really good idea it's an obstacle yeah. that we have to overcome together And so always keeping an open mind and not being influenced by tradition or inertia or the the movement of a field, always being open to, to new ideas. And so what we have to do is we train PhDs, train postdocs, is cultivate new ways of thinking, not being bound by existing ideas and aligning those students together into a team with a common goal. And if we can work together towards a one common goal like cancer, we can solve problems in better ways. 
So does that mean, I'm taking it, you want your younger people in your lab to just come at you with ideas left and right, left and right all the time. Sometimes they're going to come to you with an idea that you know from your experience probably isn't going to work, but you still need to encourage them and let them learn from their mistakes and grow from there. The, the most important thing I can do when a new idea comes out, and it may not work, and I may already know, is to never, ever discourage it, to right. encourage more ideas, more ways of thinking about the problem, and say, what else could we do? Or how else could you take that? And that's what we have to do. We have to inspire. Because if, if five ideas in a row are not very good, and we poo-poo them, we're not going to come back with more ideas. So we have to always encourage thinking, sharing, open-mindedness. And eventually, some of those ideas are going to stick, and they're going to solve problems. Yeah, you don't want to ever turn off the, the, the pipeline of new ideas because you never know when one is going to strike it rich for you. Okay. So um, Raven and Emily, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is how do you define success when you come up with an idea? How do you know if you're on the right track, even if it doesn't lead to the ultimate answer? It might provide a clue that leads you to the next step. So... Raven, what talk about some of the ideas you've had and, and some of the successes and failures? Well, I'm pretty new to the lab, but um, I have a lot of ideas, as Samik knows. I really like to read. And so um, the past couple of weeks, I've been doing a lot of literature reviews, what we call it, just reading different articles from different other labs. And um, I, I think I measure success by how excited other people in the lab are getting about my ideas. You know, back to what Samik was saying about not poo-pooing other people. It, it feels really good to even if, you know, I haven't totally fleshed out a thought or even if I haven't um, completely figured out how I'm going to do something for other people in the lab to be like, yeah, I'm into that. That seems cool. Like and challenge me and say, like, well, how would you do it then? And um, yeah, I think Emily would agree. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that stood out that um, Samik talks about pretty often, and I think there it's a wonderful reminder is John Wooden. He uh, I knew there'd be a basketball co coach oh. quote in here. Yep, here it comes. <laughs> so I remember the first official meeting entering into the lab, Sumik shares this quote with me about um, given by John Wooden, who is a basketball coach for UCSC. UCLA. See, I was going to ask you, had you ever even heard of John Wooden, that he's the legendary coach from UCLA that won like 10 titles in a row? Admittedly, I'm not much into sports. That's yeah. my brother. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the quote or the concept really struck me. And essentially, it's your satisfaction that you did your very best. So, it's not comparing yourself to other people, it's a self evaluation. You have the satisfaction that you did everything you possibly could do. And in a sense, you're not competing with others. You're competing with yourself. Wow, that's a that's a great point. And is there an example of when that happened to you, where you came up with an idea or had uh, something to add to what something someone was doing in the lab that brought you that self satisfaction? Yeah, recently we've been um, investigating a new kind of a new topic for us, a type of genomic alteration known as an internal tandem duplication. And what that means is a, a portion of a gene duplicates within itself. 
So now you have two copies of the same sequence. And is that a bad thing? Um, it's a bad thing. It can um, be oncogenic and... Create cancer. Yeah, exactly. So my thought was, can we use computer science, uh, large data, to find trends and find um, a way of detecting these internal tandem duplications? They're actually very hard to detect. So we're using computer science to see if we can find patterns with this data. Wow. So there's an example of how big data is so useful. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we'll be helpful right now, Samik, give us a sense when you say a lab and you, we've, uh, we've met two of the members of your lab, how big is your lab and sort of how do you break down the different jobs? That's a good question. So our team is made up of around 12 people and we are purposefully built to include multiple disciplines. So we combine genetics, computer science, diagnostics, clinical trials, biology, and those disciplines together, we think can solve problems better. So rather than one discipline, one focus trying to do cancer research, we purposefully blend these disciplines. And the more you get into one discipline, you realize it's full of jargon. <laughs> and so yeah. when our team meets, we have three, four different languages speaking science. They're all English still, but really have to learn to communicate listen to one another, learn from one another. And through that multidisciplinary approach, we think that's the best way to approach problems like cancer. Oh, when you say different languages, do you mean that, for example, Emily is coming at it from a big data language and Raven may be coming at it from a medical because of her background and someone exactly. else? Okay. So, and you need, and each one has its different jargon. So you need to kind of all learn each other jargon or avoid jargon. How about that? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. We try to avoid jargon. And then anybody at any one point in our meetings can say, hey, I'm not getting what you're saying. And that happens a lot. And it's really important that, that all the people in our team, the most senior, the most junior, we all stop and say, I'm not sure I get this yet. And if we don't understand one another, then we're not going to work well together. Right. So Raven and Emily... I'm picturing like you're going to your first meeting of this lab. This is a pretty prestigious lab that's um, done some great work. How long did it take to get over the intimidation factor and be able to, to put out your ideas, to feel comfortable bringing things up or to ask questions? Raven, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think for me, because this was my first experience at Ohio State was rotating in um, Samik's lab. So I kind of came in wondering, you know, Am I even qualified to be here at all? And I had a little bit of imposter syndrome is what we call it when right. you feel like, you know, I, did I get here by faking it? Like, do I actually know anything that I'm talking about? And um, actually, one of my first conversations with him was this conversation about John Wooden. And I kind of thought to myself, like, wow, this is a very different kind of lab than the ones I've been in before. I think that a lot of labs kind of focus on curiosity for curiosity's sake and aren't really interested in um, the individual people that work there and fostering their creativity and their sense of self and making them more confident and better scientists. So talking about John Wooden and talking about, um, you know, what success means and something that really struck a chord with me about that TED Talk was um, we talked about patience. 
and I'm a computer scientist and very, very impatient. I like my code to run and I like to see the result right away. And um, I'm in a really long program and I'm going to be with these people for a long time and it's a long-term mentorship experience and I don't have to know everything right away and I can be patient with myself and kind of, you know, wait and see and see if I fit in and see um, how my education goes. Wow, learning patience is probably very important for a scientist. Um, I think so. It's something that I definitely struggle with. So Emily, how long did it take you to feel comfortable in these meetings? Honestly, since day one, I've been very comfortable. What about Samik and the rest of the team made you feel so comfortable? One thing that I really appreciated was coming in. Everyone said, Emily, if you have a question, feel free to ask. Please never hesitate to ask a question. And I really appreciated that. There wasn't, it wasn't like we're on this, you know, schedule and we don't have time for questions. You know, we have to get through this meeting. Sometimes the meetings go over, but there are things that we need to address. And especially um, a question might initiate a really good discussion that, you know, we, we all come out learning more. Well, Samik, I'm betting that this culture is, might be something you learned from Mike Caligiuri. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, I can remember a time during my PhD training where Mike stopped and said, the most important thing about what I do besides caring for patients is training people like you. And, and that's what really motivates me and the special reward that I get. And I didn't get that at that moment. I said, Mike, let's just work on this paper. <laughs> and, and later... You know, 12, 15 years later, I have the same feeling. The, I enjoy the fact that we get to impact the patients we care for now with the research we do. But I also enjoy seeing Raven, Emily, and other young scientists in our team have these special moments in their career and, and learn and, and work together and, and, and grow. And being part of that, you know, that's, that's a special reward. So Raven mentioned as part of her growth was was patience, learning patience, which I've been amazed when I when I talk to people who work in labs that you can work for months or years on something and you just have to be so patient. And there's a lot of adversity. There's a lot of setbacks. So how do you help people learn patience, how to overcome adversity? You know, during the course of a Ph.D. or a postdoctoral training period, you might work on 10, 12 20 different ideas. And some of them may not go anywhere. Some of them may fail for different reasons. Some of them may not work out the way you expect. And so there's a lot of missteps. There's a lot of things you cannot control. Uh, and this is an adversity that we all face as scientists. And that kind of comes with the territory. We're doing research on things that we don't yet know. And so you're short of making a map in the dark with no flashlight. And that process has a lot of psychological demand because you're always wondering, oh gosh, it didn't work the way I expected at all. What am I going to do now? And it's, am I going back to the drawing board? Am I ditching this entirely? So that perseverance that has to come through your scientific career is hard to come by. And having your mentors tell you, you know what, not everything is going to work out perfectly, but that's when you're going to learn the most. And one of the, the silly things I do to train our young scientists about adversity and having perseverance is a, a training scenario from Star Trek II, 
The Wrath of Khan and a movie that none think, of our students have ever seen. Yeah, I think I know. I think I remember this. And in the movie, of course, it's Captain Kirk, a, a space captain on a starship. And the scene that we watched together, um, most miserably for our young students, they're like, why is this guy showing us this video? And, and why is it so grainy? Like, what are those costumes? And why is it square? And, 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 <laughs> and, and so uh, Savik, the character in this scenario called the Kobayashi Maru, it's in the simulation, and she's the captain of a starship. And she's faced with a scenario of rescuing a starship in a dangerous place. And what happens next is, is a choice. And no matter what choice she makes, something bad is going to happen. And that's the training scenario. And understanding the reason we're doing that is not because you're going to make the right choice and it's going to work out the way you expect. It's coping and facing and dealing with and making the best decision you can and going along with it and then recovering from it and learning from that scenario. And that's the Kobayashi Maru. And another way we sometimes learn about that is the idea that when life hands you lemons, Raven or Emily. <laughs> Make lemonade. <laughs> exactly. There you go. And Samik, from the small amounts of time I've spent in labs watching how they work, a lot of it is sort of solitary work at the bench, looking through microscopes, putting stuff on uh, on slides. So creating that collaboration and feeling that you're part of the team seems really important to make the job fulfilling. You know, the scientists in our team are all working on projects, but not one project is a project with one person. Each project is connected to everyone else on our team in some way, and that's what makes it possible to have great moments and opportunities for innovation. Samik, you also seem to create teamwork through having some fun, like the annual Pelotonia fundraiser you did before the pandemic that I remember included a dunking booth. The dunk booth that we've done, we call Dunkatonia. The team thinks it's for fun, and it is, but it really is a team-building exercise for us, too. So we're mixing fun, but we're also building our team. And the dunk booth that we run, we have maybe 20, 25 faculty in the booth getting dunked to raise dollars for Pelotonia. We're organizing food. We're organizing activities. We're, we're, we're selling tickets. We're selling raffle tickets. And so that event coordinating all of that requires a team working together, communicating with some leadership and all around throughout the day. And that's a great example of how people can work together, but also we're having a lot of fun doing it. So, so it sounds like if perhaps you weren't a physician scientist, you might be a coach of some sort. <laughs> you know, in many ways, I do look at leading our team as being a coach I have to mentor, I have to support, I have to listen. Uh, I am not necessarily the one solving problems, right? I am inspiring our players to work together. And I'm teaching them how they can solve problems by working with one another and also individually helping each of them be the best they can be. And that's an individual level of training, not a team level of training. So there's the team that has to do stuff together, but each person has different strengths and weaknesses, and we have to work with them to help them cultivate 
how they can be the best they can be. Yeah, it goes back to that quote that the young people are coming up with the great ideas, but they need someone to kind of encourage them and help those ideas grow. So, um, Raven, let's talk about that in this culture uh, where we're looking for innovation and new ideas. How does teamwork kind of factor into that? How does that help you think of and, and present innovation? Definitely. So as someone who is, you know, looking to go into a multidisciplinary profession, I'm going to be a physician scientist like Samik, hopefully. And um, it's really interesting to me how interdisciplinary teams work. And maybe I just like to compare my life to movies a little bit too much, but I feel like we're kind of like the Goonies. So the Goonies was like a movie from the 80s where a team of kids got together trying to save their little neighborhood from being demolished. And um, they find a treasure map and they go off trying to look for the treasure so they can buy their neighborhood back from the powers that be. And um, everyone on the team kind of has different roles and does different things and brings something new to the table. And I just really like that whole mentality that everyone meshes together really well, has different backgrounds, different experiences, but at the same time working towards a common goal and are, have a really cohesive message. Which member of the Goonies are you? Oh, that's so tough. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I can definitely be um, Chunk, and then other times <laughs> I think that I'm more like Data. Wow. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk more to Samik, Raven, and Emily. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Samik, Raven, and Emily, and we're learning all about the importance of and how to inspire young scientists. Let's talk about some of your successes, some of your aha moments when you came up with something that, that added to, the, to solving this puzzle. So Raven, you, again, you haven't been here too long, but what have you worked on that's, that's worked out well? Okay. So my focus has been on the connection between the immune system, cancer, and our genes. So your immune system is kind of like the defense system of your body. So it's supposed to protect you from things like viruses, bacteria, anything that could do you harm. And cancer is included under that umbrella. The problem is, is that cancer cells are kind of rogue cells that um, take advantage of kind of off switches we have for the immune system to hide. And the idea of a certain kind of medication called checkpoint inhibitors is that we are able to turn on the immune system where cancer has turned it off. Oh, to use a Star Trek analogy, they put up a force field yes. and then these checkpoint inhibitors kind of get rid of the force field and the, the immune system can see the cancer cells. Exactly. And once the immune system can see the cancer cells, the hope is that they'll go and kill them and then the cancer will go away. So one way that um, cells can kind of hide from the immune system, put up that force field, is through changing their genes. And they can um, increase the number of off switches that they express. And so what did you figure out? Um, I found different uh, ways that cancer cells are increasing the number of off switches. You know, that's interesting, Samik, because Raven is new and she's not going to solve this problem herself. It's going to take this is just one little part 
that is part of a big puzzle that you and your lab and other labs here and all over the world. So it's each little piece adds something to the solution, right? That's right. To solve this problem about immune checkpoints is going to take more than Raven. It's going to take more than our one team, but it's going to start with small aha moments that build on top of one another. And it could include the literature that Raven has scavenged to find out what ways she could investigate this. It could include new students who join our team who contribute with new ways of looking at the problem. And it's going to take a team to solve this. Yeah, it's like the pebble in the water and it, the, the tide goes out from there. The ripples go out. And so you're a pebble that's creating this one ripple about these off switches. So Emily, what's your pebble moment? So as I've been looking at these genomic alterations, internal tandem duplications, I've been looking at ways we can better detect them in genetic sequence. Through, through your expertise in big data. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And computer science. So I've started by reading up on literature and other software tools that are used to find these genomic alterations. And I had kind of an eye-opening moment when I looked at the code that's publicly available on GitHub. It's kind of like Facebook for uh, computer scientists. Oh, I was going to say nerds, but okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that too, I guess. <laughs> but um, I had an eye-opening moment when I looked at the code and I kind of realized I found a way to that I could potentially find these internal tandem duplications. Wow. And so you're now working on that and you're going to explore further and come up with new ways to detect the ITDs. Yeah, essentially. Wow. So, Sumik, we've talked a lot about how you have inspired and mentored Raven and Emily. How do they and the other young people in your lab inspire you? It's kind of like jamming. So one person plays one tune and the next person plays another tune. And then you say, oh, 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 say that again. Do that again. And, and what if we did this or what if we combine these two approaches and so the, the inspiration that's coming from this team is all the new ideas, good or bad, doesn't matter, and sparks and, and, and triggers and aha moments. And, and so that's one of the things that, that we've realized we really need to cultivate and inspire in one another. And as we've thought about what is an aha moment, what does it take to get to an aha moment – the, the idea is that it's not one singular moment in your PhD career that is an aha moment. There's aha moments throughout your day, throughout your week, as you come up with a question, a what if, an opportunity, a new way, a new answer, or you go to a seminar and you hear, you know what? Wow, what if we did this? Uh, or it's a paper you've read. And so aha moments are, are what we're aiming for on our path to solving the problem of cancer. And we have to work together, inspire one another. And, uh, you know, the, each of these students has already had innumerable aha moments, right? And, and, and it's just the, the, the environment, the people, all of that matters. 
Yeah, I think that's one of my takeaways from listening to you three today is that it's not this giant aha moment where you discover the cure or for something. It's little tiny things that add up to create the big treatment, the big cure. One of the things that we have done is periodically we'll stop and say what helps us get to that aha moment. So in a meeting on Monday, we'll have our every week a team meeting together. And we'll go around the room or the Zoom and say, what aha moments did you have last week? What led to that? Or what happened that brought you to that idea? Was it something somebody else said in the meeting? Was it an article you read? Was it, you know, you were working out, listening to some music? What brought you to that? Where did it come from? And we're realizing, you know, it's not just working in the lab writing your code. It's not just the work. It happens elsewhere too. It happens when you take a break to go work in your garden. It, ha- it happens when you go for a walk or, or do something for, for fun. And, and aha moments come from everywhere and we have to cultivate it and share every day. Uh, it's that work-life balance and having free time to think and meditate and, and put your thoughts together. Well, that's something else we, we always talk about too is, is balance, right? And uh, one of the things that I have learned uh, about time is that we have to be, you know, grateful uh, for the precious time that we have. We only have so much time in a given day, but we talk about how to manage time, right? Emily, how does that relate to you, what Samik just said? Yeah, so it reminds me of Hermione Granger from the Harry Potter series. She's very studious and ambitious, and in order to take all of the courses that she signs up for, she has a little time turner, which allows her to go back in time to different classes and allow her to be essentially multiple places at once. Boy, is that a good thing? That means you're working like twice as long each day. Well, if you have a lot you want to accomplish. (laughs) There you go. And I guess you all have a lot you want to accomplish, (laughs) which actually brings me to my last question for you, for both of you. Um, look ahead to when you've completed your training and you've gotten your PhDs and MDs. So Raven, where do you see yourself in five, 10, 15 years? What's your, your dream? Well, I kind of want to be Samik. Like, <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> I want to run a lab like this and have a clinical practice that I work in as well. And, you know, hopefully have teamwork to this level and this degree. And I hope I have some aha moments in the future too. And are you going to mentor some young scientists and doctors? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to make them watch the John Wooden TED Talk as well. There you go. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Emily, how about you? Where do you see yourself in the future? So like Samik, um, I have a passion for training and teaching. And so I see myself, I'm not getting an MD like uh, like these guys, but um, I want to work with doctors. That's actually always been a dream of mine. And I'm living my dream right now. So it's great. And um, But I see myself um, in a lab training young scientists and um, inspiring them. I want, I want to um, essentially pass on my love for science to them. Wow. So it, it all, I love how it goes from the generations that, Samik, you started in Mike's lab. Now you're running your own lab. Some of your people that you've mentored now run their own labs here and around the country. And Raven and Emily one day will be running their own labs. 
it really makes me happy to hear what uh, Emily said about I'm living a dream. And I think that's one important lesson about training young scientists. It's not the end. It's not the what. It's the process and the how and enjoying the journey for cancer research. And actually, that reminds me of something else that um, struck me in John Wooden's TED Talk. He said, don't just enjoy the destination, enjoy the journey. It's hard. It's hard being in grad school. But I know that I'm going to look back and remember these days coming to Samik's lab and, and um, you know, working out some problems. And it's hard, but there's joy in it, too. Wow. Well, thank you all for sharing this. It's really been fascinating to learn what it's like to go through PhD, through MD programs, to be in a lab, what you learn, what it's like to be a mentor and a mentee. So thank you all for, for sharing the journey. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.